0: Before we jump into Luke chapter 4, just uh, a quick note about our prayer gathering tonight. Uh, from time to time, you know, we have uh, prayer on Sunday nights for, uh, for our North Wake members who are married and for marriages. Uh, tonight, we're going to pray for our North Wake members who are single, uh, who are unmarried. And each way of life comes with its advantages and with its challenges, and so we want to lift one another up as one body. So if you're a Northwake single, uh, please join us tonight for prayer. Uh, It's not a mixer or a secret (laughs) date set up, it's just prayer. Um, And if you're a married member of Northwake, please also do join us as we together give thanks and intercede Uh, For our brothers and sisters who bless us so much by their presence and their investment um, here at at North Wake. So tonight, six o'clock for prayer. So Luke chapter four, this gives us an account of Jesus' homecoming. As we've seen, he's been publicly uh, affirmed and anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit at his baptism. Uh, He was then tested in the wilderness, and now in the power of the Spirit, it says, he travels through Galilee. He's teaching in various synagogues, and he's working miracles, and he's starting to generate quite a stir. You see that in verses 14 and 15. So people are talking about him. Maybe they're talking in the marketplace. Have you heard, have you heard about this guy, Jesus, who's traveling? Maybe children are asking their parents about him at the dinner table. You know, everybody's social media feeds, obviously, are showing nothing, but what's happening at the next town over with this guy, Jesus. And now Jesus comes to his hometown of Nazareth in verse 16. And what's going to happen in in this story, in some ways, sadly, you're going to kind of get the ministry of Jesus in a nutshell. What happens in Nazareth encapsulates what will happen more broadly with Jesus as the Gospel of Luke continues. Gordon MacDonald said this section of the Gospel of Luke is like an overture uh, in a musical. So if you go listen to a concert, concerto, or a musical or something, often the musical will, will begin with an overture that plays different themes that you'll hear later. If you stay for the musical as, as it goes on, you'll hear those themes reoccur later at, at key points, the different melodies. So you're gonna see the story of Jesus previewed or overtured in these verses as he comes to those who should know him, but they reject him. And thus, he and his message will go elsewhere. What happens in Nazareth is basically what will happen through the rest of the New Testament story. And at some level, still happens today. Because Jesus, in this story, he's he's rejected because his message is offensive to the people that heard it. And it's offensive in a couple of different directions. Uh, Pastor Kevin Miller points out that it's offensive both because Jesus' message is radically exclusive and he's offensive because his message is radically inclusive. kind of gets you on, on both sides, radically exclusive and radically inclusive. Jesus is often more exclusive than we'd like him to be, but he's also more inclusive than we'd like him to be. And I'll try to show you what I mean by that. As we go through the story, so you have Jesus arriving here in Nazareth. He's the hometown boy. He's kind of made a splash in the area, and he's he's coming back home. I imagine small towns, uh, if they're anything like they are today, they tend to have a lot of pride in someone who's come from that town and somewhat made a name for themselves. So. Like, my parents and family are from a small town in Georgia. And on one of the road signs, when you drive into the city in this small town, there are a couple of plaques up for notable people, people who have made some sort of accomplishment. The small town's really proud of them, so give, they give them a plaque on the road sign, like uh, NFL uh, star tight end Shannon Sharp, who kind of played back in the 90s. He has a, a, a sign, a plaque on the road sign when you drive into our town. Or 1999's Miss Georgia, Ashtia Anderson. I can tell you who she is because I have driven into this town thousands of times and I I see the plaque on the road sign. The town is proud, you know, of who they produced and what that person accomplished. And they might have even put a sign up for Jesus in Nazareth at some point if he had not said what he says. So he attends his home synagogue as he had done for most of his life from since he was a, an infant, a boy, until he began traveling and preaching and doing itinerant ministry. So if you grew up in church, this is probably a little bit like going back to your home church and seeing people that you knew, seeing people that you grew up with, again, for the first time in a while. And as someone who's been traveling and has started to become well-known for his teaching, he's invited to read from the Old Testament Scriptures and to give the sermon that day in in the synagogue. So he receives the scroll of the book of Isaiah. So that's what they used then was scrolls. They didn't have, you know, Bibles in book form like we have with a closed book. They had a scroll and it wasn't like an iPad or an iPhone or anything like that either. This was a different kind of scrolling that they had to do back then. Uh, And so he had to literally unroll this this fairly good-sized scroll. And Luke tells us, That with a measure of intentionality, Jesus finds a particular place in the scroll to read from. And he he knows exactly what passage he wants to read. And when he finds it, he reads it out loud. And Luke copies it for us here in verse 18. And Jesus takes the scroll and reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So as Jesus read the Scripture and then took his seat to give the sermon as was the synagogue custom, everybody else is on the edge of their seats uh, to hear what he's going to say. He's this much anticipated figure and then he reads this really loaded passage of Scripture. You could cut the tension in that room with a knife. What is he going to say about this? And he gives a short um, One-line sermon. I know some of you might appreciate this if we followed his example in brevity, uh, but this is his sermon today. This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Whoa! And at first, the crowd seems to love what he's saying. Uh, the first part of verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marvelled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. You now, good news to the poor. Liberty for the captive, sight to the blind, liberty for the oppressed. That sounds great. These are gracious words. We like what this guy has to say because that's us. And we've been living under foreign occupation for hundreds of years now. We've seen war after war. We're under Rome's boot right now, and we are ready for a Messiah to liberate us and bring us some good news. The year of the Lord's favor. Yes, this sounds awesome. And it does seem like they were probably a little more vocal in their response to Jesus' sermon than we usually are this day and age. Though, oftentimes, uh, even when you're preaching in a modern, relatively quiet church setting, you can still often tell how what you're saying is being received just by people's body language and facial expressions. So, Jesus is catching on to where they're going. And he seems to be. It seems to think the audience isn't really catching his drift, and he's going to correct their misunderstanding of him in just a moment. But you can also watch as their excitement fades to skepticism or is intermingled with some skepticism as people also say, is this not, the last part of verse 22, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And the other gospels will draw this skepticism out uh, in greater detail. People ask, isn't this the carpenter's son? Don't we know his brothers and sisters? I mean, it's like they're asking as he's speaking, didn't I go to middle school with that guy? I think I beat him in dodgeball. I don't think he's the Messiah. Isn't that the guy who built our kitchen table? Where did he get all this to say? I mean, some of it's quite nice, sure, but who is he to say, I'm the Messiah, all that business? You see, Jesus' words, though they're gracious, are radically exclusive. You see, he chooses this place in Isaiah to read of all places with no prologue or explanation. He just goes for it and in a very charged setting reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Do you see? Recovery of sight to the the blind. He sent me to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And he sent me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And in case you don't quite catch his implications, he goes on to say his commentary is, and today this is true. Today this is coming true in your hearing. The deliverance and rescue that you've longed for and waited for, I'm bringing it right now. It's a very decisive statement. It's a very divisive statement. Who does this guy think he is? And you know, I think the same offense still happens today. We can still take the same offense at Jesus. How can he say he's the only way to God? He's the one to bring salvation to the world. Do you know people of other religions? That's, That's kind of offensive. Who is he to make that sort of claim? Where does he get the right to say all of that? What makes Jesus so special anyway? And so Jesus gets written off by many not necessarily because of a lack of evidence about his life, about his resurrection, but just because we don't like what he has to say. And You know, I've, I've often wished that I could go back in time. Well, I wish that often anyway. Um, say less stupid stuff if I could do that. But I've really wished I could go back in time and see what Jesus did to hear what he said, you know, in person. I sometimes wonder if that would silence, you know, my lingering doubts. And I wish I could take others with me, especially people who are skeptical um, about Christ and who he is. But it seems like, from this story at least, that the deepest barriers to faith are apparently not a lack of evidence. Nazareth heard him. Nazareth saw him. They knew of what he had done, and they still did not like him. Uh, in college, I went to a concert with a buddy of mine uh, who was not a Christian. And we, we had a very good relationship. We had lots of back and forth conversations about God and about Christianity. And, um, but on the way back from this concert, it was about an hour from where we were in college, we got into another one of those conversations. And I don't remember exactly where things took a turn, but somewhere along the way in the conversation, he just stopped talking and he got really quiet. And I'm driving and I look over at him and my friend is just tears streaming down his face. And I was like, oh, hey man, I am really sorry. Like, did I say something that hurt you? I mean, I know we have these little debates, but I seriously did not intend uh, anything personal to, to hurt you and I'm kind of apologizing all over myself and he just waves me off. He's like, hey, look, It's not that. He said, I know God is there. I do. But I just can't. I don't want to. And I don't want to talk about it anymore. So I respected his wish, and it was a super awkward car ride the rest of the way home. Uh, We maintained our friendship, uh, but we didn't get to talk much more about those things. And so sometimes I wonder if the biggest barrier to faith is not that we don't have enough evidence. It's that we don't like the message. It's exclusive. But you know, Jesus' words, even though they are exclusive, they're also very gracious. They're radically gracious. Again, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. To proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, this is gracious because if salvation, reconciliation with God, making sure things are right between you and God, if that's achieved not through our own good behavior or even sincere religious devotion to any religion but instead is achieved through God's sheer, gracious intervention in Christ, then that means the weakest, the blindest, the poorest of us all can still be in. Salvation's not just for the good-looking, the hardest-working, the most spiritual, deserving religious people, the people who seem to have it all together. It's for the weak, for the poor, for the needy sinner. And I like that Jesus starts his ministry with this. It's his calling card. If he had a website for his campaign, <laughs> this would be on the front page, this passage. It's what he leads with. Good news to the poor, liberty to the captive, sight to the blind through him. That's his, his banner it's what he's about. And some commentators think that by declaring the year of the Lord's favor, he's referring to the Jewish year of Jubilee, which was um, a Jewish holiday where once in a lifetime, every 50 years, debts would be forgiven. Family land that was lost could be restored to the family. Slaves were set free. It was a taste of all the really sad things in life being undone for once in your life. You could see those sad things come untrue. Jesus says, that's what I've come to usher in. And that's a beautiful banner for who he is, what he's about, for his ministry. Now, people debate. Is what Jesus is saying here uh, literal? Like, did Jesus come primarily to minister to the economically poor or to the physically poor blind or to the politically captive? Or is this a metaphor? Is this a metaphor for those who are spiritually impoverished and morally enslaved and blind to the truth? Which is it? And I think the answer is yes. Um, Jesus did minister to the economically poor, and he did give sight to the physically blind. And he did this, yes, out of compassion, but you might also say that he did these things out of persuasion he granted physical relief and healing to show that he could deal with our much bigger deeper problems of spiritual sickness and death so you know like in mark chapter 2 when he heals the paralytic he says so that you may know the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins i'll heal this guy and he does or in John chapters uh, like 5 and 6, where he gives bread to the multitude. And people are following him around after he multiplies bread for these thousands of people. And he says, don't seek the bread, you know, that it perishes, but seek the food that gives eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. I like how N.T. Wright put it. He said that Jesus, by healing and working physical miracles, he sketched out in pencil what he would later do in ink. So like uh, if you know, an artist sketches out a drawing, sometimes they'll use a pencil first uh, to kind of lightly show you where they're gonna go and then they'll come back over it with you know, more permanent, physical uh, stuff that lasts, ink, paint, wh- whatever. So Jesus, when he does these miracles, he sketches out in pencil what he will later do in a more beautiful and permanent rendition by his death and resurrection, he will endow those who are spiritually poor. He will liberate those who are enslaved to their sin. He will enlighten those who are blind at heart. That is his greater and more permanent work. So, yes, Christians have had and should have a deep tenderness and a generosity to all who are materially poor or physically disabled or politically oppressed, precisely because their condition is a dim reflection of our own spiritual condition without Christ. So they should always have a soft spot for us, even though there is a greater work that Jesus does. Thabiti Buile says it this way, we are meant to announce to the blind that if they believe in Jesus, they may never see with their physical eyes in this life but they will see glories they cannot imagine. We are meant to announce to prisoners that they still may be required to serve lifelong sentences, but they will be free inside that jail if they believe. We must tell the poor that they may not receive riches and may have to serve the Lord for the rest of their lives in poverty, but in glory they will receive riches that they cannot imagine. This is the good news that in love we carry to our neighbors near and far. Through our own local witness, through the sending of missionaries like the divinities, planting of churches, this is our calling. Doesn't mean it'll be easy. If Jesus faced some resistance, I imagine we should not expect anything less. So Jesus' words, though they're gracious, they are exclusive. And though they're exclusive, they're incredibly gracious. It's a wonderful calling card and banner to have over his ministry? Are you lost? Are you stuck in your own sin, enslaved to yourself, unable to change, realizing you have nothing to offer God? Well, Jesus comes to bring you some good news. He's come for you. But that message kind of has another edge to it, that the people of Nazareth do not appreciate And it wasn't how exclusive Jesus claimed to be, it was how inclusive he claimed to be. And this is what really set him off. Uh, Back to verse 24 again. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Why does Jesus bring this up? Why why mention these stories from the Old Testament? He's pointing out that in the time of the great prophets Elijah and Elisha, God did his greatest works of mercy and deliverance, not for an Israelite, but for two Gentile foreigners. One was a widow of no apparent significance, and the other was an army general for Syria who had just ravaged Israel, or would soon. And they did not like what he was insinuating. How dare he imply that God's love might be reserved for those I most hate. How dare he? You can almost hear them say, wait a minute, we're the victims here, Jesus. We're the oppressed and the captive. So come on, do your miracles. The stuff you did for the people in Capernaum and those other towns, do them right here. Us first. We need your help, not them. And it's not like the Jews didn't have some kind of valid reasons to dislike the Gentile world. Their homeland had been ravaged by other nations. They were vassals to Caesar Augustus. They had been subjected to all kinds of inhumane and unreasonable practices. They had every reason to shun the outsider. But tragically, because they will not affirm God's offer of grace to the Gentiles, They will not claim it for themselves either, as Professor James Edwards says. So you see, yes, Jesus' message is exclusive, but it's also inclusive enough to extend grace to those that you are most upset with right now. Jesus is inclusive enough to extend grace. And include those you would rather not include, that you are most upset with right now, maybe even for some good reasons. And there's all sorts of but whatabouts, you know, that tend to rise up in us here, which is why I think uh, C.S. Lewis, he's got a great chapter in *Mere Christianity* on forgiveness. He called forgiveness the least popular Christian virtue, under chastity. Okay, said you think that's unpopular. Wait till you start talking about forgiveness. But there's no getting around it in the Christian faith. It is right smack dab in the middle of it all. And the one prayer that Jesus gave us to pray, forgive us our trespasses. As we also forgive those who trespass against us. Jesus is radically exclusive, but he's also radically inclusive. He he includes the kind of people, or the people perhaps, that you very much would like to leave out. And this is one reason that although Christians, we hold an exclusive set of beliefs, we must never harbor a superior or exclusive attitude. Nazareth was so excited to see Jesus show up at first. But he went too far. He didn't say much, but he said too much. He went from preaching to meddling, as they say in the south. And they couldn't wait to show him the door. Verse 28. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst he went away. And I wish Luke would tell us. I have always been curious how he escaped from this crowd. Was it miraculous? Was it just like a holy smoke bomb that he threw down to cover his exit? Probably not. Uh, but man, what a what a sad ending to this story. His hometown, his own teachers, maybe some of his own relatives. Former customers, fishing buddies, they all run him off. As John says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. If anyone should should have known who he was, should have embraced him, it was Nazareth. But Perhaps the saddest part of all this is as far as I can tell, this would be Jesus' last time in Nazareth. He went away. He doesn't come back. And his message goes to other places. It's kind, of a fright, it's kind of a frightening prospect to me that Jesus in his word would really leave a place and go elsewhere. You know, if this happened in Nazareth, Could it happen in Wake Forest? Could this happen to a church or a person? A place that, for whatever reason, consistently rejects the gracious ministry of Jesus, and sooner or later you realize that Jesus just doesn't seem to be there anymore. Could it happen to this church? Could it happen to us? To you. There are other ways to try to run Jesus off from your life than trying to throw him off a cliff. As Hebrews 4 and Psalm 95 say, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, if you ever sense God at work in your life, drawing you towards him, don't shut that down, don't push him away. Welcome him, welcome his word by hearing it and heeding it. James Edwards writes, The unsettling truth of this story is that the greatest danger to the way of God in this world is posed by those who are closest to it. Jesus is is rejected, not in Sodom and Gomorrah, but in Nazareth. He's betrayed, not by the devil, but by one of the twelve whom he chose. He's crucified, not in pagan Rome, but in the heart of Israel at Jerusalem. The rejection of Jesus repeats the rejection of God in the history of Israel, whose ultimate adversary was not Baal worship or foreign nations, but my own people who are bent on turning from me, declares the Lord. So if you're a believer in Jesus, don't stop listening to him. Don't let the familiarity of Jesus breed contempt for him. Oh, it's just Jesus. Oh, the Bible, again. Pray earnestly that you would not stop listening to him. Pray, Jesus, speak to me. Never stop speaking to me. I always want to hear your voice and, and heed it. So don't settle for just cognitive knowledge of God, growing in your understanding and yet remaining unmoved, unchanged by the word of God. You know, I I worry, especially for our seminary folks, I mean, so much of your life is inundated with God stuff and Bible stuff. Don't let the familiarity of it all dull your love for him. Um, Anthropologist Margaret Mead once said that Americans are a culture of neophiles, meaning we love new stuff. Uh, We're always looking for something new. We don't like the same old, same old. We want variety. Listen to what J.C. Ryle, he says, we are apt to think lightly of the privilege of an open Bible, a preached gospel, and the liberty of meeting together for public worship. We grow up in the midst of these things and are accustomed to having them without trouble. And the consequence is that we often hold them very cheaply and underrate the extent of our mercies. Let us then take heed to our own heart in the use of sacred things. As often as we may read the Bible, let us never read it without deep reverence. As often as we hear the name of Christ, let us never forget that he is the one mediator in whom is life even the manna that came down from heaven was at length scorned by Israel as miserable food. It is an evil day with our souls when Christ is in the midst of us, and yet, because of our familiarity with his name, is lightly esteemed. Does Jesus seem stale to you? When he does, it's only our own dullness at fault. For Jesus has been enough to satisfy the mind and heart of the Father for all eternity. And he'll be enough to satisfy us too. May he give us eyes to see how beautiful he is again and again. Uh, But also, you know, if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus or you're still sorting that out, uh, let me maybe try to address how this passage may apply to you as well. Um, maybe you've been with us for a while now. You've been here uh, since the book, we started the book of Luke or maybe you were even here last year when we went through books like Ecclesiastes and I'm glad you're still here. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you're still considering Christianity and I, I think it is good to take some time to weigh things out, to count the cost and consider what you really believe. But at some point you will have to make a decision about what to do with God. And you can only put that off for so long. And I hope you see maybe the, some of the danger here about putting him off, putting him off, putting him off. What if Jesus were to give you what you're asking for and just move on and you not hear his voice any longer. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Jesus says that he came to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So if today you know that would describe you spiritually, then I have some good news. Jesus came for you. He is good and kind. Won't you receive him? Why put him off any further? So as we close in prayer, if you're ready to respond to Jesus in faith, that maybe you could pray something along these lines. And I'll put it on the screen also as we pray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I admit that I am spiritually poor, captive to my sin, and blind as how to fix any of it. But you say that you have come for me in love to bring good news. So I choose to believe today. You have paid my debt borne my punishment, offered forgiveness, and welcomed me into the family of God. So I turn away from my sins and receive you as Savior. And uh, for those of us who are already believers in Jesus, but you, you know that you've grown too familiar with him, or perhaps today you've realized that you are far too reluctant to see his grace and mercy extend to someone that you're just done with. Uh, Perhaps you could pray along these lines with me. Lord Jesus, I pray that your visit here this morning, your visit to me would not be a hometown kind of visit. Pray that I would not be so familiar with you that you and your words that I forget the joy and privilege that it is to hear from your word, to love you and to worship you and to live for you. So if I've grown too familiar, then wake me up and open my eyes to see your beauty again today. And Lord, if I am harboring resentment in my life, Grant me the ability to remember the mercy that you have shown me when you had every reason not to. And teach me, teach me, Lord, bit by bit to extend your love in the directions that I would not take it on my own. So meet us here this morning, Jesus, as we welcome you into our life, into our church, and into the week to come. And it's through him we pray. Amen.